0: You take your Bibles and turn along with me to Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one. We have a tendency to take great and amazing things for granted. How many of you had to go outside in the cold first thing this morning to use the outhouse? No one, hopefully. How many of you had to go pump water, bring it in, haul it back into the house so you have fresh water? How many of you worry that your water is contaminated? Might make you sick. Most of us made it to church this morning after a very comfortable drive in a heated car, leather seats, traveling a significant distance in just a few minutes. But we take it for granted. Or we can. Look out the window this morning and see the grandeur of Pikes Peak. We get to see this great sight every day. And yet, most of us have grown so accustomed to it that it sometimes goes unnoticed. We have a tendency to take great and amazing things for granted. The same can be true of our spiritual blessings. We can become accustomed to them, so accustomed that it seems routine and every day, and I've heard this before. If we fail to take stock and really consider just what it is that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, then we'll take it for granted. Our text in Colossians this morning is a wonderful statement and antidote for us. It's a wonderful statement of thanksgiving and a wonderful antidote to ingratitude. For it reminds us of the great and amazing blessings that are ours in the gospel. Paul, after beginning with a very customary but meaningful greeting, begins the body of his letter with opening words of thanksgiving for the work of God in the Colossian believers' lives. Verses 3 through 8 are one long sentence, pretty typical for Paul, in which Paul shares from his heart his sincere gratitude to God for his gracious working in the lives of these fellow believers. So let me read for us from Colossians chapter 1, that the Lord might grow in us a heart of thanksgiving. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing, in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. This is the Word of God. Let us pray together. Lord God, let us... Not treat glorious truth with indifference. Let us look around and take stock of our spiritual blessings. May we not, through casual acquaintance with these truths, dismiss them as mundane and common. This is amazing what you have done for us. Grow us in gratitude for your work in our lives and the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ and for your work that is going on all around the world today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Paul's thanksgiving for the Colossian believers in these verses, we are going to see together four descriptions of the good news of the gospel so that we too may give thanks to God for His gracious work in the gospel. Four descriptions of the good news of the gospel that will lead us to thanksgiving. First of all, the gospel is rooted in the Trinity, The first description of the gospel is that it is rooted in the Trinity itself. Paul gives thanks to God for the work of the gospel in their lives. We give thanks to God, verse 3. As Paul gives thanks to God for them, he also mentions at the end of verse 3 that he always prays for them. Now, we shouldn't take this too literally, As though Paul always and only was always praying for the Colossian believers every minute of every day, even in his sleep. But rather, Paul is saying that he faithfully and regularly and repeatedly went before the throne of grace on behalf of the Colossian believers, praying for their blessing and for their well-being. And the content of Paul's prayer we're going to see is found in verses 9 through 12, which we'll come to to together in the very near future in our study of Colossians. But for now, Paul keeps his prayer at the level of thanksgiving. Paul begins this extended expression of thanks in verse 3 by stating that the one he is thankful to is God. And more precisely... God, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have God the Father, and in the mention of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have, of course, God the Son. The first and second members of the Trinity. Now look down with me at verse 8 of Colossians 1, which continues this report that Paul had received from Epaphras, who's just come from Colossae and reported to Paul all that was going on back there in this young church. And in verse 7 or rather verse 8 he says, And he, Epaphras, also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So now in verse 8 we have God the Spirit being included in the work that was taking place among these Colossian believers. So in Paul's prayer of thanks, we have the mention of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Paul, in this opening salvo of thanksgiving for God's work of the gospel in the lives of these Colossian believers, mentions all three members of the Trinity. Now we know that God is one, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy six. God is one in essence, and yet Scripture also clearly reveals that God is three in person, one in essence, three in person. That can be hard for our minds to conceive of. There is an element of. Mystery there that we'll never, as humans, as mortals, be able to fully understand and comprehend, and yet the scriptures reveal it as being true. The Athanasian Creed is helpful in summarizing the mystery of the Trinity. It states this We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit is still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. And here in Colossians, we see that all three Persons of the Trinity are actively involved in the work of the gospel in our lives. It was a team effort to bring you salvation. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working to bring about our redemption. God the Father is the ultimate source of our salvation, we know. And that's why Paul, I believe, directed his thanksgiving to God the Father. For God the Father is the ultimate source of our salvation, decreeing our salvation from eternity past. Paul wrote of this clearly in his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians and Colossians sit in our Bibles right next door to each other. And for good reason, they were written around the same time, obviously by the same author, under the same conditions as he was under house arrest. Ephesians and Colossians share much in structure and content. These two letters are like twins. Not identical twins, but more like fraternal twins bearing many of the same characteristics, but you can still tell them apart. So look with me what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. So we have Colossians chapter 1, where we have this extended prayer of thanks. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoptions to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who did all these things in eternity past. Paul emphasizes that our salvation originates in the Father. Back to Colossians. Look at verse 12. We didn't read that this morning. It's a little beyond our scope this morning. But look at verse 12 of Colossians 1. As Paul mentions he's constant prayers for the Colossian believers. He says he gives thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. God the Father has qualified us. God the Father has done all that was necessary so that we might be acceptable in His sight. That we might be reunited with Him in fellowship. It was God the Father who by His grace and by His will chose us unto salvation and sonship in eternity past. It was God the Father who sent His Son to become a man and die on our behalf. It is God the Father who is the ultimate source of our salvation and who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. God the Father is the architect of our salvation. So that's God the Father's role in our salvation. God the Son is the agent of our salvation He put the plan into effect. God the Son accomplished and secured what God the Father had planned. Look again at Ephesians. Skip back over. I know Philippians gets in the way, but... Ephesians 1. In Him, Jesus that is we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us jesus was the means by which god's plan was carried out again back to colossians chapter 1 verse 14 Paul says, in whom, referring to God's beloved Son of verse 13, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Our redemption, the forgiveness of sins, was secured by the Son. It was God the Son who became a man and took on flesh and dwelt among us so that He could serve as the sinless substitute for sinners on the cross. So God the Father is the ultimate source of our salvation. God the Son is the agent of our salvation, securing our salvation through His own self-sacrifice. And then in verse 8, Paul mentions the love that the Colossians have, a love that is in the Spirit. That is a love that comes from the realm of God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is the one who applies salvation to our hearts and lives and begins producing fruit in us of that salvation. Again, back to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 13 and 14. In him, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, In him, that is Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So God the Spirit is active, applying the work of salvation to our hearts, regenerating us, granting us faith, sealing us in Christ, and producing His fruit in our lives. Beloved, the work of salvation is the gracious work of all three members of the Trinity on your behalf. Serving you. Securing your salvation and deliverance from the wrath of God. Our salvation finds its origin in God the Father. It was secured by God the Son. And it is applied to our hearts by God the Holy Spirit. So Paul gives thanks to God for his gracious work of salvation. A salvation brought about By all three members of the Trinity. And that leads Paul to give thanks. So it should for us. It took a work of God. All three members of the Trinity. To bring you and I to salvation. This is no small thing. This is not normal. You may have heard it again and again but it is a wonder and it is glorious and it is worthy of our thanksgiving. Second feature of the gospel is that it is the word of truth. It is the word of truth, the gospel. Look with me at verse 5, Colossians 1, where Paul talks about the hope Laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard, in the word of truth, the gospel. Paul here refers to the gospel as the word of truth. We might well translate this as the word of truth that is the gospel. So the gospel is the word of truth. Now skip down with me to verse 6, Colossians 1, 6. He's talking about the gospel here, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. The grace of God in truth. Here, Paul refers to the gospel as the grace of God in truth. The gospel is the word of truth, and it is the grace of God in truth. Paul is stating clearly here that the gospel is not just another message, it's not just another idea or philosophy or proposition. No. The gospel is God's gracious revelation of truth to humankind. The gospel teaches us truth. It teaches us the way things really are. Since the gospel message has come from God, and since God is a God of truth, the gospel therefore is not a lie, and it is not a mixture of truth and lies. It is rather perfectly true. We might say it this way. The gospel is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Before the gospel came to us, we were building our lives on lies. We had a skewed view of reality. A skewed view of the way things truly are. We thought we were in control. We thought we were in charge. We thought we were pretty good. The gospel came to us and confronted us in all the lies that we believed and built our lives upon. Lies like there is no God. And there is no such thing as absolute truth. Lies like, well, if I'm good enough, God will accept me. But these things aren't true. These things aren't the gospel. These things are lies. And they're contrary to the truth of the gospel. The gospel confronts all these lies and all the lies of the world with the truth of God's grace for us in Jesus Christ. The truth of the gospel is that God created us and therefore we are accountable to him as our creator. He's called us to be as he is, holy, to live holy lives in keeping with His law. Instead of keeping His law, we sin. We break His law. And that sin has separated us from God and leaves us guilty and deserving of His just judgment and condemnation. But God in His love sent His Son Jesus to die For us on the cross, Jesus, being the Son of God, he lived a sinless life and died a death he didn't deserve. But Jesus willingly died for us on the cross and received God's just punishment for our sins. Jesus bore God's wrath on our behalf and he died on the cross. He was taken from that cross. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And he rose from the dead on the third day, proving he was indeed who he claimed to be, the Son of God, showing that God the Father was pleased with his sacrifice as a substitute for sinners. Now God invites all mankind to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins And for the gift of eternal life. This is the word of truth. The gospel. It confronts all the false gospels of the world. This is the gospel of truth. And it is the only truth worthy of building your life upon. This is what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 7, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them he will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell. The floods came. And the winds blew and slammed against that house. And it fell. And great was its fall. Build your lives on the truth. The truth that is the gospel of God's grace. Thirdly. A third Characteristic of the gospel is that it, the gospel produces faith, hope, and love. It produces faith, hope, and love. We've seen already that Paul has mentioned each member of the Trinity in giving thanks to God for their salvation. Now we see Paul mention a trinity of graces. That he has heard is active and abounding in their lives. The three fundamental Christian graces which were active in their lives were faith, hope, and love. Paul made a similar observation about the faith, hope, and love in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, I'm constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, And steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. The gospel is powerful. Powerful to save us and powerful to change us from the inside out. That's why scriptures refer to salvation as being born again, being born from above, being regenerated. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we become new creatures in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. As Christians, our lives begin to be marked by new things, by faith, by hope, and by love. And Paul mentions all three as being among the reasons for his thanksgiving to God in the work among the Thessalon- the Colossians and the Thessalonians. He mentions their faith first in verse 4. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. The Colossian believers had both professed and demonstrated faith in Jesus Christ. Of course, faith is the entry into God's grace. It's how we receive God's gift of grace and eternal life and forgiveness of sins. We receive it simply by faith. We believe, we trust God to be true to His promises to us in Jesus. As we've seen before, I just want to bear... Mention it again, biblical faith involves three characteristics. Knowledge, agreement, and trust. You've got to have all three. Knowledge, notitia in Latin. It's the facts concerning the object of our faith. The facts. You have to hear and know something of the facts of the gospel to savingly believe it. But you can't just have knowledge. Even the demons believe and tremble, right? They have knowledge. There must also not only be knowledge, but agreement, a census in the Latin. We must affirm the facts concerning the object of our faith. So we not only have to hear the truth of it, we have to affirm that it's true. We have to agree that it's true. While those two Aspects of faith are necessary, they are on their own insufficient to bring us to saving faith. The final element is trust, fiducia. Knowing and affirming these truths about the object of our faith is not enough. We must also trust in the object of our faith. Entrusting our lives and our right standing and our souls to God. Trusting our souls into his saving hands. Trusting in Jesus Christ alone to be the sufficient sacrifice for our sins. And believing that he paid it all. And that all is finished in him. The Colossian believers manifested this kind of faith in their life. Next, Paul mentions love. In verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. And again in verse 8, Paul says that he has heard of their love in the Spirit. A Spirit wrought and produced love. They of course also had the model of love in the person of Epaphras. Look at verse 7. Epaphras, who had shared the gospel with them. And it was love that made Epaphras a servant of Christ on their behalf. Literally a slave of Christ. Love, of course, is a fruit of the Spirit. It is the first fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5.22. Love is that God-like, others-centered, self-sacrificial love that is the hallmark of every true Christian in some degree. You'll know that they are Christians by their what? Love. Paul so vividly describes this love in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4. Love is patient, love is kind. And is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. But rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. And endures all things. And then Paul says love never fails. Then in 1 Corinthians 13, that same chapter, in verse 13, Paul mentions this same great trinity of virtues. And he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, But now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is what? Love. Love. How can Paul say that love is the greatest? Aren't they equal in value? No, Paul says love is the greatest. Why? Why? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons because it's the most tangible, it's the most visible expression of the gospel in our lives. Without love, our faith and hope are meaningless and empty. But also, I think, it's because love is the only eternal characteristic that will still be in operation in heaven. Our faith will one day be turned to Our hope will one day be fully realized. But love has no end. And will be eternal. So Paul is thankful for their faith, for their love. And in verse 5, he's thankful for their hope. Paul is saying here, in verse 5, that their faith and their love has risen. Has been born out of their hope laid up in heaven. The reason they have faith and love is because of their hope. Their faith and love had its source in their hope in the Lord's promises. Now, what is a Christian's hope? Well, it's not a I hope so kind of hope, it's not a wish. It is not a I hope so kind of hope. It is a no so kind of hope. Christian hope is the settled certainty in God's promises to save us and bless us eternally through Jesus Christ. And that kind of hope produces faith and produces love. Faith, hope, and love form the triad of Christian graces. They set us apart from the rest of the world that is so often faithless, hopeless, and loveless. And they, too, are reasons for giving thanks to God for their presence in our lives and in the lives of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. All right, finally this morning... The final feature, characteristic of the gospel that moves us to thanksgiving is that the gospel is constantly spreading and bearing fruit throughout the world and in our hearts. Look with me at verse 6. The end of verse 5, he mentions the gospel Verse 6, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. This is a great statement that the gospel is always, always, always on the march. The sun never sets on the gospel. The gospel is never static. The gospel is always on the move. It is always spreading and increasing around the world and in us. For Christ is in us. Now Paul never made it to Colossae. He didn't plant the church. He didn't preach the gospel there far as we know, he never visited. But that didn't stop the gospel from getting there. The gospel marches on. Epaphras came to Ephesus, heard the gospel preached by Paul, was gloriously saved, took the gospel message back to his native Colossae, preached the gospel And the church was born. And so it happens again and again and again by God's design and by God's power. Nothing can stop the gospel. Paul would say later on in 2 Timothy, during a different imprisonment in which he was chained to Roman soldiers, this was not a house arrest, just before his execution. And despite the chains that he wore, he said, The Word of God is not chained. I might be imprisoned, but the gospel's not imprisoned. The Word of God in the gospel is going forth and bearing fruit and increasing in all the world from the first day even until now. It can be easy for us to think sometimes that the gospel is in retreat. That the most productive days of the gospel are surely behind us. That the kinds of great spiritual awakenings and revivals that have been marked throughout history are just that, history. But never underestimate the power of God through the gospel to find its way into the hearts and minds of lost people. As Americans living in an increasingly unbelieving secular culture that is rejecting God, it would seem at every turn, it can be easy to think that this is the case around the world. And it's not. For the gospel marches on. Listen to this quote from the World Christian Encyclopedia. The number of evangelicals, okay, evangelicals in the world has increased from 112 million in 1970, okay, 112 million in 1970, to 386 million in 2020 three times as many christians now in the world as in the year that i was born three times as many worldwide the gospel marches on the article continues globally evangelicalism is predominantly non-white and is becoming increasingly more so with 77% of all evangelicals living in the global south in 2020. 77% of Christians are living in the global global south. That is Latin America, Asia, Africa, and Oceania. 77%. That's up from just 8% in 1900. The gospel's marching on. God is doing His work of redeeming a people for the glory of His own name. And Paul further states that just as the Word was going forward and increasing in all the world, so it was also bearing fruit and increasing in the individual lives of the Colossian believers. The Word of truth, the gospel, is always at work, always on the march always bearing fruit, and always increasing, both in the world and in us. So take heart, be encouraged, and thank God for the work of the gospel that's going on all around the world, all around our nation, all around our community, in our own church, and yes, in your own heart. Beloved, we have reason to give thanks to God for his wonderful gospel, which is at work. It is a work of the Trinity. It is the word of truth. It produces faith, hope, and love. And it is constantly spreading and bearing fruit, both in the world and in our hearts. Thanks be to God for his glorious gospel. Let's pray. God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks for the gospel which has been applied to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, opening our eyes to the deadness of our hearts, the sinfulness of our ways, and the certainty of God's judgment, and causing us to be born again and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And find forgiveness and eternal life through him. Thank you that this truth of the gospel is marching onward. Thank you that it is moving forward throughout the world and constantly bearing fruit, even as it does in our own lives as well. Lord, thank you for the hope of the gospel. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.